You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn, progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral, and you can go to the website youcan'tbeneutral.com. There you'll find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral. You'll find some links there. You'll find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story by Katya Lafferty, also called Catherine Lafferty. This is published at the thee.ca. That's T-H-E-T-Y-E-E dot C-A. Story by story, Canada's news media built indigenous oppression. On July 6, 1885, Sir John A. Macdonald rose in Parliament to reaffirm the by then well-established colonial portrait of indigenous peoples as a danger to society and spreaders of illness. Quote, I have not hesitated to tell this house again and again that we could not always hope to maintain peace with the Indians, that the savage was still a savage, and that until he ceased to be a savage, we were always in danger of a collision, in danger of war, in danger of an outbreak, he said. The quote is included in Bob Joseph's book, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act an excellent primer on the cruel and racist legislation that continues to oppress First Nations. If Joseph had wanted to make it 22 things, he could have added that the Indian Act was a result of words not just by politicians, but also Canada's press, each feeding the other in a vicious circle of denigrating stereotypes and justifications for genocidal policies. The Indian Act, created in 1876, didn't just appear out of nowhere. Like most legislation, it had to have been the product of research, documentation, consultation, and public support. The news media of the day, therefore, played an instrumental role in rallying the citizenry and providing politicians their talking points. Shocking headlines portraying First Nations as savage threats regularly appeared in journals and missionary newspapers at the time. These also proved useful for creating, in 1877, the Dominion Police, also known as the Northwest Mounted Police. They became the RCMP, who today claim they were formed to guard Parliament and protect First Nations peoples. But scholars say the force was created mainly to enforce the Indian Act. The purpose of the Mounties, quote, effectively, was to clear the plains, the prairies, of indigenous people, says Steve Hewitt, who teaches at the University of Birmingham and has written three books about the RCMP's history. Ultimately, they were there to displace indigenous people, to move them onto reserves, whether they were willing to go or not. 
In the years leading up to the making of the Indian Act and the Dominion Police, publications in Canada, too many to count, were publishing stories promising tales of Indian atrocities and white settlers held Indian captive. The effect was to scare white readership into believing that indigenous peoples were a mortal threat, and so the need for a law that would govern and control indigenous peoples. Mark Cronlin Anderson, author of Seeing Red, A History of Natives in Canadian Newspapers, explains that Canadians were taught by their media that indigenous people were lesser humans. In this way, he writes, the press has both reflected naturally and regurgitated spontaneously and necessarily the culture from which it emerged at the same time as reinforcing and teaching prevailing social norms to youth and newcomer. Anderson talks about the rule of three. The news portrayed indigenous peoples as having a trio of all-encompassing negative qualities. Depravity, innate inferiority, and a stubborn resistance to progress. The rule of three is, quote, the reasoning that engendered the creation of the treaty system in residential schools. And once the residential schools existed, the news media assisted in downplaying their harsh realities. Take, for example, a news article with the headline, Indian Boy Frozen on Bush Trail, published by the Regina Leader Post newspaper in 1938 and cited in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report, Canada's Residential Schools Missing Children in Unmarked Burials. The reader is told that an 11-year-old boy named Andrew Gordon, quote, left the school Saturday afternoon to visit his parents and had trudged thinly clad more than four miles through dense woods and snow from three to five feet deep. The article implies that the boy had simply gone out for a walk and left no indication that he may have fled the school out of misery or fear for his life. The story stated that Gordon was the grandson of the, quote, oldest Indian chief in Canada, which leaves hanging the question, would this child's untimely death have made the news if he hadn't been the grandson of a prominent chief? Most likely not, as we have been reminded by the recent discovery of the bodies of children on the grounds of a residential school in Kamloops. The death of all 215 children apparently went undocumented by the media in a time span of 128 years since the school opened in 1893. Candace Callison is a member of the Taltan Nation and an associate professor at the University of British Columbia in the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and the School of Journalism, Writing, and Media. An expert in the power and role of the media, Callison notes that Canada's settler society was complacent about the harms caused by the residential school system for nearly a century. Why weren't media of the day asking questions about the welfare and well-being of children, she says. Why weren't media asking why the church was still in control of these schools well into the 20th century and towards the end of it? It is not that long ago that many of these incidents happened. Dominant society continues to portray indigenous peoples as dangerous, though nowadays the risk is more commonly framed by mainstream media using what Callison calls a deficit model. That framing assumes that it's okay to control indigenous peoples by deeming them unable to take care of themselves, their land, and their children, explains Callison.
Such mythology about indigenous inferiority is deeply rooted in national identity. Callison calls it part of the founding of Canada. Canada's founding leaders and their supportive news media shared the goal of achieving assimilation, ensuring that indigenous peoples were incorporated into the dominant group's way of life. Residential schools were key tools for attempting to erase indigenous cultural and spiritual beliefs and have indigenous peoples fall in line with more organized religious belief systems. A century and a half after the Indian Act was made, as deadly truths about the Kamloops residential school system became impossible to ignore. Those institutions who had a part in hiding the truth, the church, the police, the government, and the news media, had no part in helping uncover the grave sites. The need to do so certainly had been made known. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission had concluded there were thousands of undocumented graves of children on residential school grounds and sought a mere $1.5 million to find them, a request rejected by the administrator of the Indian Act, Canada's federal government. And so members of the Tukemloops to Sequepamek Nation were the ones who had to do the work of finding their kin and putting out a press release. Only then did dozens of reporters flood the area to get their big breaking story, without pausing to first consider the grief that was felt in the community. Most of the news media moved on quickly to their next big headlines in a blink of an eye, while reporters like Kelsey Kelowna with Indigenous Kelowna stay with the story stepping up to tell reporters to be sensitive when reporting on issues that are too close to home for many. By the time Canada's founding father delivered his views on indigenous savages, quoted at the top of this piece, the Indian Act was nine years in place, but key steps leading up to it had been officially laid 55 years earlier. Launched in 1830, the Indian Civilization Program was based on three philosophical principles, states historian John F. Leslie, in testimony given to Parliament in, 20, in 2002. These were Indian protection based on the Royal Proclamation, improvement of Indian living conditions, and Indian assimilation into the dominant society. Between 1830 and 1858, there were six government investigations of Indian policy in the new administrative arrangements, writes Leslie. The cumulative investigation sanctioned the Indian Civilization Program and, in essence, created an institutional memory for Indian affairs policymakers that in subsequent decades informed their attitudes towards Indian people and Indian issues. These so-called investigations sought virtually no Indigenous participation and were fictional scenarios written by those with the power to publish. When discussing Indigenous issues in the late 19th century, writes University of the Fraser Valley Professor Robert Harding in a 2006 journal article, quote, a wide range of oppositions were employed in news texts, beginning with the most basic ones, such as us versus them, and civilized versus savage. To this day, much reporting situates Indigenous people as problematic and not credible, pitting the voices of Indigenous peoples against those of government experts and offices. The government response is taken as a patriarchal final say, invested with the power to make decisions for Indigenous peoples. It is a very old assumption, 
long reinforced by the media. Harding notes that as a white settler Canada became into being, journalists transmitting the most negative stereotypes about Indigenous peoples generally believed they were helping to save rather than destroy the subjects of their articles. He offers as an example the newspaper of the Metlakatlan Christian Mission, which in the late 1800s extolled the heroic qualities of white men and demonized the customs, practices, and beliefs of indigenous people. Concludes Harding, quote, The idea that Canadians of Aboriginal ancestry epitomize moral depravity is as old as the press in Canada. Calliston points to skewed coverage of the 2019 release of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report to illustrate how powerful mainstream media is still implying Indigenous inferiority. The lengthy report well documents the genocidal nature of Canada's policies towards Indigenous people, providing much expert analysis. Yet, as Callison explains, every major newspaper in Canada issued editorials that challenged the author's use of the word genocide. The result was to undercut the credibility of the report instead of actually drawing from it as a tool for accountability. One reason Canada's news media remains condescending towards Indigenous persons is that newsrooms include so few of them, notes Callison, who dissects such structural inequalities as co-author of the book, Reckoning, Journalism's Limits and Possibilities. She says, quote, When in a hierarchical society you end up with a certain kind of coverage, when you have newsrooms with dominant members of society, you have stories that reflect that. And those newsrooms decade after decade told the same stories John A. Macdonald told Parliament. Back in the 1860s, writes Harding, while Aboriginal people definitely took an interest in what was being written about them and frequently attempted to set the record straight, their voices were virtually excluded from news discourse. Aboriginal sources were not quoted and news stories were exclusively targeted to non-Aboriginal audiences. Even nowadays, as veteran CBC journalist and professor of journalism Duncan McHugh, who is Anishinaabe, puts it, for an Indigenous person to make the news, they either need to be drunk, drumming, dancing, or dead. McHugh and Colliston are part of an important movement in education to create awareness of how Canada's press historically has served to help build and support institutions that degrade, denigrate, and marginalize Indigenous peoples. The aim of such teaching is to change the way Canada's news media operates. Quote, Journalism provides us with a set of tools, and how we use those tools can move us towards justice, can move us away from suffering, notes Callison. If Canada's news media helped to bring life, bring to life the Indian Act, can also help to dismantle it by shining a light on the truth behind the veil of colonialism. Two stories now to round out this episode, um, both historic events that happened at the end of December, the first on December 26, the latter on December 29. This piece is by Levi Rickert and Neely Bardwell and is published at nativenewsonline.net. 
This day in history, December 26, 1862. Most commonly revered as the United States president who freed the slaves, Abraham Lincoln is known for something different in Indian country. On this day, 160 years ago, 38 Dakota men were hanged following orders from Lincoln in the largest mass hanging in U.S. history. The execution happened in Mankato, Minnesota, in front of some 4,000 spectators. Some historical accounts say that the men each held hands and sang a traditional Dakota song in the moments leading up to their deaths. Often erased from history, the men's hangings were direct consequences of the U.S. and Dakota War of 1862. The war was a result of broken treaties and broken promises from the U.S. government after Dakota land continued to be diminished. The war lasted for over 37 days and resulted in the deaths of an estimated 77 U.S. soldiers and 29 Dakota warriors. The U.S. took more than 2,000 Dakota leaders into custody, where many were eventually sentenced to prison and others to death. Lincoln ended up only approving the execution of Dakota leaders who were proven to have committed civilian massacres. While the 38 men approved for execution were awaiting their demise, 3,000 other tribal members and prisoners were being sent to Fort Snelling. American Indian author Mark Charles wrote for Native News Online. In the fall of 1862, after the United States failed to meet its treaty obligations with the Dakota people, Several Dakota warriors raided an American settlement, killed five settlers, and stole some food. This began a period of armed conflict between some of the Dakota people, the settlers, and the U.S. military. After more than a month, several hundred of the Dakota warriors surrendered, and the rest fled north to what is now Canada. Those who surrendered were quickly tried in military tribunals, and 303 of them were condemned to death. The trials of the Dakota were conducted unfairly in a variety of ways. The evidence was sparse. The tribunal was biased. The defendants were unrepresented in unfamiliar proceedings conducted in a foreign language, and authority for convening the tribunal was lacking. More fundamentally, neither the military commission nor the reviewing authorities recognized that they were dealing with the aftermath of a war fought with a sovereign nation and that the men who surrendered were entitled to treatment in accordance with that status. Because these were military trials, the executions had to be ordered by the President, Abraham Lincoln. 303 deaths seemed too genocidal for President Lincoln, but he didn't order retrials, even though it had been argued that the trials which took place were a legal sham. Instead, he simply modified the criteria of what charges warranted a death sentence. Under his new criteria, only two of the Dakota warriors were sentenced to die. That small number seemed too lenient, and President Lincoln was concerned about an uprising by his white American settlers in that area. So for a second time, instead of ordering retrials, he merely changed the criteria of what warranted a death sentence. Ultimately, 39 Dakota men were sentenced to die. And on December 26, 1862, by order of President Lincoln, and with nearly 4,000 white American settlers looking on, 
the largest mass execution in the history of the United States took place, the hanging of the Dakota 38. The New York Times provides a haunting recount of the day's events. Quote, Precisely at the time announced, 10 a.m., a company without arms entered the prisoners' quarters to escort them to their doom. Instead of any shrinking or resistance, all were ready and even seemed eager to meet their fate. Rudely, they jostled against each other as they rushed from the doorway, ran the gauntlet of the troops, and clambered up the steps to the treacherous straw. As they came up and reached the platform, they filed right and left, and each one took his position as though they had rehearsed the program. Standing round the platform, they formed a square, and each one was directly under the fatal noose. Their caps were now drawn over their eyes, and the halter placed about their necks. Several, several of them, feeling uncomfortable, made severe efforts to loosen the rope, and some, after the most dreadful contortions, partially succeeded. The signal to cut the rope was three taps of the drum. All things being ready, the first tap was given. When the poor wretches made such frantic efforts to grasp each other's hands, that it was agony to behold them. Each one shouted out his name, that his comrades might know he was there. The second tap resounded on the air. The vast multitude were breathless with the awful surroundings of this solemn occasion. Again, the doleful tap breaks on the stillness of the scene. Click goes the sharp axe, and the descending platform leaves the bodies of 38 human beings dangling in the air. The greater part died instantly. Some few struggled violently, and one of the ropes broke and sent its burden with a heavy dull crash to the platform beneath. A new rope was procured, and the body again swung up to its place. It was an awful sight to behold. Thirty-eight human beings suspended in the air, on the bank of the beautiful Minnesota, above the smiling clear blue sky, beneath and around the silent thousands, hushed to a deathly silence by the chilling scene before them while the bayonets bristling in the sunlight added to the importance of the occasion. In a separate historic order, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves, went into effect six days later on January 1, 1863. And finally for this episode is a piece published at slj.com, and this is written by Frank Waln. Frank Waln is an award-winning Sikangu Lakota hip-hop artist and music producer from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. American media outlets and public school curriculums teach U.S. citizens to remember massacres and senseless acts of violence that were carried out on U.S. soil, such as Pearl Harbor and 9-11. However, the same educational systems and outlets have all but forgotten 
about the senseless acts of violence and genocide carried out by the U.S. government. I grew up within a few hours' drive from one of the largest massacre sites in U.S. history. Most Americans have never heard of it. It has been 132 years since the Wounded Knee Massacre, which took place on December 29, 1890, on colonized Lakota land, now known as South Dakota. A photographer documented the aftermath of that day for all of eternity, and I can't look at the photos of massacred women, children, men, and respected elders piled into a mass grave after being gunned down in the snow. The soldiers who murdered them heartlessly posed next to the bodies as a hunter would his trophy kill. These service members received medals of honor for their participation in the massacre. The photos from that day are in black and white, but my mind sees them in color as if the unbearable memory is burned into my DNA. What if the photos were never taken? Would the memory only exist amongst my people? The events leading up to the massacre replay in my mind over and over and over again, almost as if it's still happening to us, because in many ways, it still is. Under U.S. law, the Oseti Sakowin, consisting of the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota nations, were confined to reservations. These reservations were essentially open-air prison systems created to control every aspect of our daily life as the government colonized our lands for white settlers and westward expansion. Mounting tensions and settler fear of a ceremony called the Ghost Dance resulted in the U.S. government sending troops to the reservations to stop and subdue the rebel groups who were participating in the ceremony. The ghost dance ceremony had been brought to our people by Lakotas who traveled west to the land of the northern Paiute people, what is now Nevada, Oregon, Idaho, and California, where they encountered a northern Paiute elder and spiritual leader. This leader shared his vision of the ghost dance ceremony with us. He said that those who participated in the ceremony and danced would break free from the oppression of the settlers and help end westward expansion in the colonization of our lands. Even though participants of the ceremony were only dancing and praying, the hope it brought to Lakotas scared the white colonizers. It also scared government officials because the ceremony gave resisting Lakotas a way to organize against settler colonialism. Settler fear was at an all-time high on the reservation, and troops were sent to intervene. During this military occupation, the U.S. 7th Cavalry surrounded a camp of Lakotas on the Pine Ridge Reservation, who were led by an ill chief, Bigfoot. The camp had not violated any laws, but the settlers were afraid of the ghost dance and Lakota resistance. The soldiers circled the camp at gunpoint and forced the occupants to hand over their possessions, including their weapons. A young Lakota man refused to hand over his gun and fired a shot at the soldiers. The troops then opened fire on the unarmed camp at the command of the leaders. In Luther Standing Bear's My People the Sioux, he recounts the massacre as told by his brother, who was stationed on a nearby hill 
and witnessed it all. Quote, the soldiers kept shooting until nothing stirred within the entire camp. Little babies were shot to death right in the carriers strapped to their mothers' backs. Hundreds of women, children, men, and elders, including Chief Bigfoot, were murdered with no chance to defend themselves. To deepen the wound, the frozen bodies were then thrown into a mass grave and buried by the same men who slaughtered them, preventing family members from recovering the bodies of their slain relatives. The few who survived fled in the bitter cold and snow to resistance camps off the reservation, leaving behind their beloved and all their worldly possessions. The Department of the Army called the massacre a battle. Reporters also failed to mention that these soldiers were killed by their own comrades who had aimlessly shot across the camp. Public opinion at the time of the massacre was indifferent, if not favorable, as Americans thought the decimation of native populations was a necessary action to clear space for the white settlers. Due to popular anti-native sentiments in the media, many Americans didn't believe that native people were human beings. They saw us as part of nature existing below the white settler and in the same category as plants and animals. In fact, many Americans believed the U.S. government was protecting them from the wild savages of the West depicted in the media and pop culture. Long before I was born, media portrayals of native people have dehumanized us to a point where our death is framed in a positive light. The first time that I learned about the Wounded Knee Massacre in the context of the U.S. education system, I was a junior in college. I reluctantly took the course because it was convenient for my schedule and I had to take it in order to graduate. A white man taught the class. The first few weeks of the course covered the Indian Wars, including the Wounded Knee Massacre. During these lessons, a professor would look to me to confirm the accuracy of the material. This happened both figuratively and literally, as the entire class would study me to see if I agreed with what the professor said. I'm not a historian. I was enrolled to study audio engineering. However, I had to correct the professor a lot during those first few weeks, which made me resent the class even more. I started to realize that my experience was actually a result of the systematic erasure of Native people in the U.S. education system. I was paying my hard-earned scholarship money to be in a class where I had to teach my peers about the massacre of my ancestors, while the white professor who was paid to teach the material turned to me for answers. Tragically, many Native students in the U.S. education system know this experience too well. I can say from personal experience this happens everywhere, from elementary school classrooms to the campuses of our most prestigious universities. It is not hard to understand why many Native students struggle to fit in and to feel safe in an education system that consistently places us in uncomfortable and often unbearable situations. Imagine if these classrooms didn't have the brave Native students to correct the colonial propaganda masquerading as history still being taught in 2020. 130 years have passed since a massacre at Wounded Knee. The silence about it in U.S. classrooms and media is as loud as the silence that lingered in the camp 
after hundreds of innocent human beings were executed in cold blood. The failure to teach students about these events further perpetuates native genocide and erasure by ensuring the continuation of collective silence. Thankfully, we now have the individual choice and access to knowledge to teach the truth about the history of the land we live on. After hundreds of years of systematic erasure and silence, Native people have also had to get creative with how we share these truths and histories with classrooms in the world at large. As a member of Dream Warriors, a collective of Native artists and educators, we've developed ways to bring our histories and the reality of Native communities to schools in the form of performances, workshops, and residences. We've taken to schools all around the world. For the last 34 years, the Bigfoot Memorial Ride, consisting of mostly Osseti Sakowin riders and organizers, retraces the same 187-mile path through the plains that Chief Bigfoot's camp took before they were surrounded and killed. Every year they ride through the harsh plains winter, the same way our ancestors did, to honor the lives lost and keep the memory alive. As a Lakota artist and writer, I stand on the shoulders and work of all of the Native people who kept our histories and stories alive despite ongoing efforts to silence and erase us through history. There have always been and always will be Indigenous-led movements to share our histories and stories with a country that largely remains indifferent, if not ignorant, to our genocide. Even if America has forgotten about this act of homeland terrorism carried out by its government, I can never forget, even if I wanted to. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Uh, remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can check out all those back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. From the album In the Key of Lakota, here is Frank Waln with our moment of Zen. This song is called Concentration Camp Blues. Thanks for listening.
Ancestors return soon.